number of years ago, I remember watching a debate between Richard Dawkins, the famous zoologist based at Oxford University now, formerly of Cambridge, and then one of my professors when I studied at Oxford, John Lennox. It was held in the British Natural Museum of History, and it was a fascinating interaction of two key scientists going head-to-head -head on the God question. And at one point, Richard Dawkins looks at John Lennox, this emeritus professor of mathematics and a philosopher of science, and he says, do you believe in the virgin birth? John Lennox says, yes. And Dawkins was incredulous. How on earth can a man of science believe in such nonsense? If you're growing up here in secular Australia, you're pretty familiar, I would guess, with at least the perception, a cultural mood, that science has largely done away with belief in the supernatural. That religious people can have their little parties where they sing their songs and they give their money and they have their gatherings, but keep it out of the public space because this is where the adults have their conversations. And we do it in the realm of the real world, reality, of facts, not of fantasy, not of fiction, not of make-believe. Uh, this is a pretty common challenge that young people face head on. So what is the relationship between God and the natural world, the scientific endeavor with which we study the natural world. Has science ultimately buried God? Well, I want to start this morning by reading a passage of scripture to you that speaks about the interaction of Jesus with the natural world. And it comes from Colossians chapter 1. Here it is. He says, Colossians 1.15, the sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him, and without him has not anything made. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. These are a number of massive claims that Paul, a theologian some 2,000 years ago with no scientific training, is making about the relationship of a supernatural being to our natural world, of some invisible force now to our visible experience. But not everyone alive today shares the convictions of the Apostle Paul. Take many of the popular science communicators, public intellectuals who are more of the atheistic persuasion, like your Dawkins or your Dennett's or your Sam Harris's, or take someone like Neil deGrasse Tyson, who recently hosted the remake of Carl Sagan's famous Cosmos series. And Neil deGrasse Tyson made the claim that God is an ever-receding pocket of scientific ignorance. What does he mean by this? God is an ever-receding pocket of scientific ignorance. Well, in one sense, if you think that God and science are competing explanations for the way that the universe functions, I kind of get where he's coming from. You see, in the ancient world, people used to make sense of much of the natural phenomenon around us by appeals to the gods. 
For instance, if you wanted your crops to grow well, well, you'd go and make the sacrifice to the relevant god of agriculture or fertility. If you wanted to do well at war, you would go and give thanks or sacrifice to Mars or Apollo, the gods of war. You would dictate, if you were going on a journey out on the water, well, Poseidon, he needs to be on your good side. Why? Because these forces of nature are at the whims of the gods who are capricious and change, therefore you need their favor. People used to appeal to the gods to explain lots of what they didn't understand. Take something like lightning. What was lightning in the ancient world? Well, that was Zeus from Mount Olympus striking down someone who has ticked him off, right? Or how do you account for thunder? Well, that was Thor, Chris Hemsworth, fighting aliens in some distant part, striking his hammer, and the sound reverberates to everyone else. People used the gods to make sense of natural phenomena that they couldn't otherwise explain through cause and effect. But what does science now cause? Well, we understand these phenomena. We understand that there is a static buildup up in the clouds that has to be discharged. That's lightning. We understand that that superheats the air around it, causing such a quick expansion that that sound wave then echoes out. Well, that's thunder. And the more and more through scientific study and observation and experiment we're able to make sense of the world around us, the less and less people over the years have been appealing to supernatural beings to help make sense of what's happening in the world around us. This ever-receding pocket of scientific ignorance. And Neil deGrasse Tyson claims that's where God hides, that Christians, people who believe in God, are looking for these tiny gaps in our scientific knowledge, and they just plug God into those holes to be able to protect him. But the more the light of science dawns, the more God hides in the shadows, the less those shadows become, eventually he'll be done away with altogether. This is the belief that science is burying God. But the idea that there is some cosmic battle between God and science as two competing explanations for reality, the idea that science has buried God is self-evidently false from one very simple observation. The existence and prevalence of Christian scientists. Let's take a little bit of an exploration around the state of science today. If you were to go and look at key leading figures, let's take a couple of theoretical physicists from Cambridge in the last 50 years. You've got Stephen Hawking, known to be an atheist, and you've got Sir John Polkinghorne, an evangelical Christian. Now, both of these men are brilliant scientists. The difference is not their capacity, their intellect, but yet they have very different conclusions about the world. One believes that there is no God. One believes that there is a God. Or take one of the greatest scientific projects of the last couple of generations, the Human Genome Project. The first director of the Human Genome Project, Francis Crick, was an atheist. But the second director of the Human Genome Project, Francis Collins, he's an evangelical Christian. Believes in God, believes in the Bible, believes in Jesus. He's a Nobel Prize winner. None of these men are underperforming when it comes to their scientific credentials. They're all brilliant scientists, and yet some don't believe in God and some do. 
You see, the problem for the atheist who wants to claim that science has buried God is you have to think that there are an awful lot of high-profile scientists who are Christians who are just burying their heads in the sand when it comes to the conclusions of the fields that they're studying. And this isn't just an isolated incident. Let's start tracking this back through history. You go back to the origins of many of the scientific fields, even the uh, revolution of science in the 16th and 17th centuries, and nearly every father of modern scientific fields believed in God, believed in the Bible, believed in Jesus. Johann Kepler, Isaac Newton, Michael Faraday, the list goes on and on and on. Spell it out. They didn't see their faith as hindering their science. Far from it. They saw their faith as inspiring their study of the natural world. And here's why. You see, when you go and read the book of Genesis, what does it claim? That in the beginning, God. That before matter, time, space, matter, and energy existed, there was an eternal mind who then brought all nature into existence and then goes about shaping the chaotic waters of creation to bring about order. He establishes light from darkness. He sets apart the skies above from the skies below, the water from the land, and then he cultivates and populates these spaces. He is a God of order, a lawgiver. And if you're going to go into the laboratory to be able to do science, there are two things you have to believe before you start. One is that the universe itself operates according to law-like function. And two is that human beings have the rationality, the capacity with our minds to understand the natural world. Now, the problem, as many historians of scientists have pointed out, is that very few worldviews, very few ways of understanding the world actually give you these base beliefs. People like James Hannum or A.N. Whitehead or uh, even modern historians like Tom Holland, as they look back through history, they track, there's a reason why it wasn't the barbarians in Germania that uncovered modern science. Or the mystics in the Orient, though they made phenomenal discoveries and had great technological developments. It wasn't the philosophers in Greece. It wasn't the animists in Africa. There was a specific group with the right pre-beliefs to allow modern science to get off the ground. Actually, it was a Christianized Europe in the 15th, 16th, and 17th centuries that led Francis Bacon to develop the very specific conditions for the concept of modern science, the scientific principles with which we now operate. And they said this because human beings, as the original progenitors of their field, studied Genesis 1, created in God's image with a mind that can understand nature that this eternal lawgiver had set in motion and upholds by the power of his word. And not only did they have the capacity to do it, and if you go back and read your Bibles in Genesis 1, they had the command to do it. The very first command given to humanity, the cultural mandate in Genesis 1, 28. Be fruitful, multiply. We know what that means. We've just seen it here in the dedication. Be fruitful and multiply, but subdue the earth and rule over it. Now, if your command is to take a small cultivated garden in Eden, but then continue to expand those borders to encompass the rest of the wild world, to be able to tame it, to be able to make it fruitful, to be able to irrigate deserts, to be able to create your own gardens, to be able to build cities, 
To do any of this, you have to be able to understand and study God's creation in order to make it fruitful, in order to be able to help use it rightly for human enterprise. And so they understand, as you go and read the prolegomenas for their original scientific works, that this rationality in nature, this command in Scripture, that their science was inspired by their belief in God, not hindered by it. And the fact that people have this ongoing belief that science has buried God denies even the last hundred years of some of the greatest scientific minds. If you go back and look at a graph of the Nobel Prize winners from 1901 to the year 2000, what you'll discover is that 65% of the Nobel Prizes were won by Christians. An additional 20% of Nobel Prizes were won by people who were religiously Jewish, meaning 85% of Nobel Prizes in the 20th century were won by people who believe in a personal God who created and sustains the natural world as we have it now. And if science had buried God, then someone forgot to tell an awfully large number of prize-winning scientists. The conflict thesis is a myth. There is no war between science and God. And the philosophy undergirding modern science, that there is a law-like universe out there, that we have brains with the rational capacity to unlock its secrets, and that we require some kind of methodology, something that helps to guard against human error with a community that tests it and repeats it, is something that was there from the reformers because of the influence of the doctrine of sin. That our finite and fallen minds with motivated reasoning requires some system of testing, of accountability, so that we can't falsify or screw up the data, which is the origins now for modern science in and of itself. John Lennox, one of my professors at Oxford, he said, Christianity gave me my subject, and I'm profoundly thankful for it. And it was C.S. Lewis who sums up so beautifully what takes these historians of science tomes to write when he said that men became scientific because they expected law in nature. And they expected law in nature because they believed in a lawgiver. Wonderful way of being able to craft that. But let me move on just from the history and some of the foundations of science, because a lot of you are thinking, man, where does this fit? I don't get it. That's not what I talk about with my kids. That's not what they're struggling with. Because for most people, where the rub comes in, the supposed conflict between science and Christianity really has to do with the discoveries of science and whether that supports the Bible or whether it contradicts the Bible's major claims. And in truth, there are some real questions to work out here. Much of it comes as to how you read the book of nature, the book of God's works, and the book of scripture, the book of God's words. How do you interpret the scientific data that we have? How do you interpret the ancient literature of the book of Genesis? How are we meant to then bring these things together helpfully? And the truth is, Christians who believe in God, believe in the Bible as God's word, and believe in Jesus, disagree. Some people are convinced 
that the Bible teaches that the earth is six to 10,000 years old, young earth creationism. Others think that God has created this universe over a large period of time and has even used perhaps the process of evolution in various ways to bring about bipedal hominids whom then he can set apart, create a paradise, and reveal his image to. And there are a number of differing positions, six in total, along that spectrum. Now, you're probably sitting here this morning convinced of your perspective. That's okay. As a Christian, you've got the freedom to best try and make sense of God's revelation using our reason. But just be aware that not all Christians agree exactly on what the Bible's claims are around the timelines or the methodology. Some think more why than how when it comes to the book of Genesis. But nonetheless, when we ask the question of does science point towards or away from the existence of God, I think this is easy ground. Because the Bible does make some pretty massive claims. For instance, it claims that God is made known in nature. Let me give you a couple of places. Psalm 19 verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech, night after night they reveal knowledge. There is no word nor no tongue where their voice is not heard. It goes out into all the world. In other words, creation speaks. Or take the Paul's reflection in Romans 1.20, where he makes the claim that since the creation of this world, God's invisible qualities, his divine power and might have been clearly seen, being evidenced by what has been made, so that people are without excuse. The Bible is very open about the claim that when we look at nature, It points towards a creator. And this is a claim that I think has remarkably been confirmed in the last hundred years through scientific endeavor. If you went back a hundred years from today, the vast majority of the intellectual community believed that the universe was eternal. Bertrand Russell, the famed atheist, public intellectual in England, he said the universe is just there and that's it. It's a brute fact. But then Einstein comes along. 1915, 1917, his theories of relativity. And people begin to work with his equations. A particular Catholic monk by name George Lemaitre starts to predict the concept of an expanding universe, being able to trace it back to a finite point in time. Then you've got that guy that loves to stare at the skies, Edwin Hubble, with his telescope, notices that as he's studying the heavenly bodies, many of the planets and stars that he can see, that there is this red light that's reflected back to him, the red phase of light, which means everything's moving away from us, outwards from Earth. That means the universe is expanding. And then the discovery in the middle of last century of the cosmic background, radiation, the afterglow of the Big Bang, the discovery is all confirming something that the Bible has been claiming for thousands of years that our universe has a beginning. There was a time when it was not, that time, space, matter, and energy come into existence out of nothing. Therefore, it requires a cause. This has strengthened many of the ancient cosmological arguments that were set forth by some Greek philosophers or by Christian, Jewish, and Islamic scholars throughout the Middle Ages. But something even more remarkable was discovered in the last 100 years. And it's something known as cosmic fine-tuning. I can get this clicker working nearly there. I think it loves me. Here we go. Now, picture this scene. 
the intricacies of a machine like this. Every little piece having to fit within its cog for everything to be able to finally turn and function. Well, let's talk about the nature of our universe and the fact that you and I are here to sit on it right now, intelligent life. Your existence is unbelievably improbable. There are a near infinite number of universes that could have existed in which your existence would have been impossible. Ones where intelligent life would never develop anywhere in the vast reaches of our planet. In fact, scientists in the last 50 years have discovered now some 50 or so unique features around the initial conditions of our universe, the moments after the Big Bang, that had to be so precisely calibrated. Not a hair's breadth more or less in terms of its force or initial number for intelligent life to be possible. Picture it this way. There's many people here are probably over 50. Old school bank doors, you know, the big vault doors, thick steel, giant locking rods. And the only way you're getting into the vault of life is if you perfectly tune 50 individual dials in a unique calibration lock. Everyone has to be in their right place for that thing to open and for life to be possible, not just on Earth, but anywhere in the vast reaches of our universe. Now, did this just happen by chance? Or are we ultimately designed? Well, an American physicist, Paul Davies, he uses this analogy to help you try and get at the improbability of it happening by chance. And he takes one of these unique, finely tuned features, the strong nuclear force. This is the force that holds together the various parts of an atom. He said, if you were to alter this force by any more than 1 in 10 to the 37th power, right? That's 10 with 37 zeros after it. The universe as we know it could not exist. Now, what's the likelihood then that the strong nuclear force is so precisely calibrated to allow you to exist? Well, he gives this analogy. He says, take the continent of North America. Anyone ever travel to America? A few of you? Land of the free, home of the brave? However we think about that. Well, North America is made up of the USA, Canada, as well as Mexico. And let's say you took all of North America and you covered it in 10 cent coins. That's a lot of 10 cent coins. It is a vast continent. But let's say that you stacked up those coins using a lot of sticky glue for after you leave Earth's atmosphere, but covering North America and stacking it all the way up to the moon a couple of hundred thousand kilometers away at its furthest elliptical point. Can we just agree that that is an insane number of 10 cent pieces? It's almost impossible to visualize this giant America-sized stack of coins protruding from the earth all the way as a bridge to the moon. But then he says, you need to take another one billion continents the size of North America and repeat the process. Cover them in 10 cent pieces, stack it up to the moon. That's one billion and one moon bridges worth of 10 cent coins. Take one more, dip it in red paint, hide it somewhere in those one billion and one stacks, 
Blindfold one of your friends, kick him out into the wilderness, and let them choose at odds just one coin. He says the odds of them choosing that one coin by chance, roughly speaking, are one in 10 to the 37th power. That's the same probable probability of you, of the strong nuclear force being so finely tuned to allow for intelligent life. And that is just one of the 50 or so individual features that had to be so precisely calibrated to allow for intelligent life. Now, looking at the numbers can be pretty confronting. It's hard to get your head around. But Sir Fred Hoyle, a British astrophysicist, the guy who originally coined the Big Bang, and here's why he did it. He does not believe in God, wanted to believe in an eternal universe, and did not like the evidence pointing towards the beginning of the universe because, and this is his words on the BBC radio, he thought it allowed a divine foot back in the door. It sounded too much like the claim of Genesis 1-1 that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And so he coined the Big Bang as a way of making fun of this theory that gained such popular acceptance after that. And yet looking later at the evidence of fine-tuning as it was coming in, this is what Fred Hoyle ultimately concluded. He says, a common sense interpretation of these facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with the physics as well as with chemistry and biology such that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. A common sense interpretation of the facts. This fine-tuning problem, as the scientists call it, leads to the fine-tuning argument, as theologians and philosophers call it, that God ultimately is the best explanation for this complex fine-tuning. That behind the world, we don't just have a creator, we have an intelligent designer. In other words, this is as close as you will ever hear an atheistic scientist coming to quoting Psalm 19.1. That the heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. I think there are good reasons, whether in the origins of the universe, the fine-tuning of the universe, the information that's part of the universe that makes up our biological systems, DNA, that points towards the existence of a creator, a designer, someone who is intimately involved with the world that he has made, something that leans a long way to supporting the claims of Colossians chapter 1. For by him, for him, and through him, all things have been made. But let me finally talk maybe about the limits of science. Because science has something that's grown out of and been supported by Christianity for a long time. It's a great gift to the world. Christians should be pro-science. It's produced vaccines and technology that's better the lives of so many. It's an act of worship as we love God with our minds. It's a fulfillment of his initial command to study and make sense of his creation in order to make it fruitful. And yet... As good a gift as science is, it has limits. And we need to recognize its limits in the kinds of questions it can answer. Can science explain everything? And the answer to that, I think, is no. But sadly, that's not an answer that is universal. In fact, it's not even one that's popular in much of secular thought. The new atheists of a decade ago, the Harris and Dawkins and Hitchens and Dennett, 
Even today, you'll hear people making the claims that they made that the only questions worth answering are questions that science can explain. That you shouldn't be asking why questions. Those are dumb questions, they'll say. You should only be asking the how questions because science deals with mechanism, not purpose or agency. But I think this philosophy, what we could call scientism, a science of the gaps, actually is not helpful. And it's self-defeating. Take one of its original uh, sort of case makers, the skeptic David Hume. Now, David Hume was an empiricist, uh, was no friend of belief in God, and yet when he started to speak particularly about the nature of the role of science versus the role of God, he was pretty clear. Let me read this. You just move to the next slide. That'd be great. He said, if we take in our hand any volume, meaning if we pick up a book of divinity or of school metaphysics, Think theology or philosophy, God stuff or big question stuff. Let us ask, does it contain any abstract reasoning concerning quantity or number, i.e., does it work out what it's saying using mathematics? No. Does it contain any experimental reasoning concerning matter of fact and existence, i.e., does it use the scientific method? No. Well, then commit it to the flames, for it can contain nothing but sophistry and illusion. In other words, he's saying, whenever you're reading something and it's telling you how to think about the world, if it can't prove what it's saying using mathematics or science, throw it away into the fire because it's all make-believe trying to convince you of something that's not true. Well, let's take his claim at face value. Now, this is his own book on metaphysics. Let's pick it up for a second. David Hume's book on metaphysics. The statement that he's just made. Can I ask everyone here a question? Is that a statement that you can test mathematically? I don't see any equations or numbers in there. No. Is that a statement that you can test scientifically? What experiment could you produce? data to support that from studying the natural world around us. I can't think of any. So by his own criteria, what should we do with his book? Let's have a good old-fashioned book burning right now, right? Because it can contain nothing but sophistry and an illusion. He's trying, as they so often do, to pull one over on you using philosophy to say that philosophy is meaningless, never believe anything that philosophers ultimately say. A number of years ago, there was a famous exchange between two titan thinkers. Peter Atkins, an atheistic chemist from Oxford, brilliant scientist, but a very, very aggressive atheist, if you've ever listened to any of his talks. And then William Lane Craig, a Christian philosopher and theologian who himself has debated many of the big name atheists around the world. And the question came up where Atkins asked uh, William Lane Craig, do you deny that science can explain everything. Craig said, absolutely, I deny that science can explain everything. Atkins says, well, name one thing that science cannot explain. Craig looks back at him and says, I'm actually very glad you asked. 
Because if you're going to bring this up in the debate, I've got five things that I think we are rational to believe as human beings that cannot be explained scientifically. And he starts numbering them off. Let me just share a couple. Logic and mathematical truths. The axioms of logic or the equations of mathematics are not able to be tested scientifically. They're abstract reasoning in our minds, not experimental reasoning. You have to presuppose logic and maths to actually argue for it in the first place. Metaphysical truths. The idea that right now you are not just a figment of my imagination, me projecting your reality, or the idea that the external world is real, that you're not just plugged into the matrix and all of this is some simulation game. These things you cannot test scientifically because you're trapped within that system. But yet, none of us believe that. We're rational to believe that these things are real, that you're there, that I'm here, that this world is real. Ethics, the difference between good and evil, is not open to testing scientifically. Science describes merely what is. It cannot tell us what ought to be. So said David Hume, the famed skeptic, his famous is-to-ought gap that science can never jump over. Aesthetics, the beautiful, like the good, not open to the scientific method. Science itself, permeated by all kinds of assumptions which we just have to hold to be able to do it in the first place. Many of the base beliefs I spoke about before. Let me add two of my own. History. Science cannot prove that Kevin Rudd, Kevin 07, won the election some 15 years ago. Why? Because science depends upon repeatable observation and experiments. Historical methodology is different. It uses a different set of criteria to go back to try and establish probabilistically what ultimately happened. But history is not open to the scientific method. And most importantly, science cannot tell me how bored you are right now. You see, the thoughts that are locked up in your mind are not accessible to the scientific method. What is inside a person, as much as it can test your chemical composition or attach anodes and cathodes to your brain or study the pheromones that are coming off you right now, it can make surmising maybe some of the things that are happening, but the content of your thoughts, the why, that's something that you ultimately have to make known. It has to be personally revealed. Imagine after this, as I hope you probably do here, we all went and had a cup of tea. But we walked out the back and you walked in and the kettle was boiling. And you asked me, Dan, why is the kettle boiling? And imagine I said to you, well, the kettle is boiling because electrical energy is passing through the socket, then down through the cable into the base of the kettle. And as it gets to the base of the kettle, it hits the copper coil, it forms the conductor in the bottom, and the resistance in the coil actually causes the electrical energy to be transferred to heat energy, which then passes by way of induction up into the water molecules, and that then starts to create them to oscillate faster and faster until finally the water turns from a liquid state into a gaseous state and is able to break the surface tension to be given off in the form of steam, and that's why the kettle's boiling. Now, you might look at me and think, you're an idiot. <laughs> an intelligent idiot, but an idiot nonetheless. Because I haven't answered the question that you're asking. I asked, answered your why question with a mechanistic explanation, a how. But not a who and a why. And this is part, I think, of much of the confusion for many popular science communicators, many of the atheistic types. 
They think that Christians believe that God is a competing explanation on how to make sense of the how questions when it comes to nature. That we just say, God did it, and we're satisfied with that. No, we're not. The earliest Christians weren't when they began their scientific observations. Rather, what Christians believe is that there are two types of explanation. The mechanism, the how he does it, but then the agency question, the who and the why. And most of life's deepest questions are not answered by the how. They're answered by the who and the why. Who are we? Where do we come from? Why are we here? Where are we going? The deepest questions in life are not answered by the dictates of science. Like with the thoughts of our own minds, they are revealed to us by our maker. They're not revealed in the study of God's works in nature. They're revealed in the study of God's words in scripture as God himself has made himself known. Most clearly, the invisible God made known in visible form through Jesus. And if you want to know who you are, why you're here, the answers to life's deepest questions, science is a gift, but it's the wrong tool to try and answer these questions. You have to see whether or not there is a credible revelation from God that answers those questions for you. And I'm convinced that's exactly what we find in the scriptures. If you're a newcomer here, I want to leave you with an invitation to be able to explore the teaching of Jesus on life's deepest questions. And I want to do it with the words of one of the most famous scientists of the last couple of hundred years. If we could go to the last slide, please. Albert Einstein. He himself did not believe in God. Let me be perfectly clear. He described himself as a believer perhaps in Spinoza's God, what we might call a pantheist, where the laws of nature are an expression of God himself. And yet, when he was interviewed around the life of Jesus of Nazareth, the interviewer, thinking he would claim, like many of the academic elite of his time, that Jesus is just a myth, a legend, the gospels are unreliable, all of this is made up, he gave the most fascinating answer in this interview. He said, as a child, I received instruction both in the Bible and in the Talmud. I am a Jew, but I am enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. No one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates on every page. No myth is filled with such life. Jesus is too colossal for the pen of phrasemongers, however artful, so that no one can dismiss Christianity with simply a witty remark. What a fascinating insight from one of the most brilliant minds of the last couple of hundred years. No one can dismiss Christianity. Jesus is too colossal. His personality pulsates in every page. Have you read the gospel accounts of Jesus? Because as I came to these questions as an 18-year-old, Wondering, who am I? Why am I here? What is this life ultimately for? What should I be aiming at? Who am I meant to be becoming? I found the answers of Jesus to be so illuminating and captivating and humbling and helpful. And I know of no scientific reason why I should discount them from being true. And I know a ton of scientific reasons why I should stand up and take the idea of God and a creator seriously. And I invite you to as well.
love to pray and we'll leave it at there. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you that you have made yourself known to us. That you haven't hidden, but you've left yourself with testimony in the heavens, in our own human nature, and spread out throughout history, particularly in Jesus. Thank you for the awe and wonder that breaks in upon our hearts as we look at the natural world. But Lord, we also recognize the brokenness that's in the world and how your word tells us that comes because of sin. So Lord, I want to pray for newcomers here that you would lead them to your son Jesus as they study his words, perhaps for the first time, to take him more seriously, realizing that science has not buried God. If anything, it's resurrecting him all over again. There's a history of that happening. We're about to celebrate it at Easter. So Lord, would you lead them to your son Jesus, to his answers, to the questions of eternal life, and to the purpose here in this life. And Lord, for the believers that are here, for those who follow Jesus, or would you help them to be wise? What arguments not to get into around this stuff, but instead just to use these revelations in nature to point others to take more seriously the claims of Jesus, that he really is worth believing this luminous figure of the Nazarene and that there is no one who is more worthy of our trust and our devotion. In this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.